Support for IPR comes from Des Moines Metro Opera, whose 2024 season features The Barber of Seville, Zalame, Peleus and Melisande, and American Apollo, June 28th through July 21st. Tickets available now at Des Moines Metro Opera.org. It's River to River from Iowa Public Radio News. I'm Ben Kiefer. We are awash in election polls, especially in these final days of the campaign. How should we interpret them? What can polls tell us? What are their limitations? What are the increasing challenges pollsters face in our hyper-partisan digital age? These and many other questions to tackle this hour with Peter Hansen, director of the Grinnell College National Poll, associate professor in political science at Grinnell College. Peter, welcome back to our program. Hi, Ben. Thanks. It's great to be here. I want to reach out to our listeners this hour. What polling questions do you have on your mind as we discuss um, uh, the how-to, sort of a polling guide eight days before the election, um, how polls work? Any of those sorts of questions about polling methodology, uh, Peter would love to tackle. one 780 9100 1-866-780-9100, or email us river to river at iowapublicradio.org. So let's start this way, if we could, Peter. Um, We are consuming polls, as I said, you know, every day, several a day, often in our news. Um, What is the framework you put around any poll that you see in the news? What would you first want to tell us we should remember or take note of when we see any political poll? Well, I I think the first thing to remember is that polls, by definition, are a fuzzy snapshot of the attitudes of the American people. Um, We can't measure those attitudes with precision. Um, And the public, of course, is particularly interested in using polls for measuring uh, election races, which are often very close. Um, And that uh, that's very difficult when when a race is close to to try and say what's going to happen with precision is hard. So. I think my, my number one piece of advice is is uh, treat every poll you see judiciously. Look at a variety of them. If you can, look at averages of polls on sites like uh, Nate Silver's 538 rather than just one. Um, and uh, remember, again, that uh, these are, are snapshots of opinion um, rather than exact predictions. Mm-hmm. And, and let's let's look at some of the terminology used in polling when we uh, say margin of error. For instance, we had a recent poll, Mediacom Iowa poll, that showed um, a Mike Franken within three percentage points of um, Senator Grassley. Now, we have to think of the margin of error there, right, because it's so close. So h- how do we think about that? Sure. Well, uh, anytime we conduct a poll, we uh, contact a sample of the American public. Um, so, for example, with the Grinnell College National Poll, um, we contact 1,000 people. Um, and statistically, we know that um, those 1,000 people, assuming that they are representative of the public, you know, they're randomly selected. So, uh, in theory, they should uh, represent uh, the American public. Um, we know that statistically, uh, the attitudes of those samples, that sample will reflect the attitudes of the American public within a margin of error of about 3%. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, it's, it's important to remember that even our random sample is going to differ from the actual American public in some key respects. We know that 
older people are, are more likely to answer their phone, phone than younger people, for example. Um, so we often have to weight our results uh, toward uh, the characteristics of the population as described in the U.S. Census um, so that we can adjust our sample so that it better reflects what the American public looks like. And by going through that process, we, we try and zero in on public attitudes as best we can. If we have a poll with a, um, a difference of three points in, a, in any given poll and the margin of error is three or three and a half percent, does that mean the, the poll is, is useless because the, the spread is within the margin of error? Well, it's, it's not going to help you predict who's going to win the race, of course, because uh, say a, a race is decided by half a point or a point. Uh, if two candidates are within the margin of error, uh, we're not going to be able to say with confidence uh, which is actually ahead. Uh, but of course, you know, uh, trying to predict election outcomes is just one thing that polls do. Uh, you know, the mission of the Grinnell College National Poll is to understand the health of American democracy by looking at attitudes about liberty and equality and liberal, de- liberal democratic institutions. So predicting elections is is one thing that we do, but there's mm-hmm. this whole broader picture of, of trying to understand public attitudes that I want to remind your listeners of as well. Yeah. Uh, do uh, tell us about the latest Grinnell College National Polls um, that um, you've been busy with. You, you don't have a new one out at the moment, but but tell us about the recent ones and, and how uh, they frame this election. Well, it was very interesting. Uh, our poll came out at the end of September, and um, I would guess that we captured Democrats as they were peaking leading up to the midterms. Uh, we showed uh, that Democrats were leading in the generic congressional ballot. Uh, we found very high levels of Democratic political engagement. They were more likely to predict, predict or to report high levels of political activity than Republicans. Um, and so it looked like a very tight race at that time. Uh, since then, it looks like the Democratic position has deteriorated. Uh, the economy has uh, really risen in prominence. Uh, our data suggested that independents were very concerned about the economy, so that a race that closed on that message would probably be good for Republicans. And that seems to be what's happening. I, I would guess the Republicans are opening up that lead uh, once again. Mm-hmm. So this, uh, we have a lot of people really locked into their decisions at this point, I, I would guess. So is it really coming down to the independence here that, uh, uh, for instance, we have several competitive congressional races here in Iowa. Independence will decide it? Well, I, I think there are two big factors to think about. One, of course, is the independence. Uh, will they show up? Who are they going to vote for? What message is resonating with them? Again, our findings suggested they're really concerned about the economy, and that suggests a Republican advantage. But then we also have to pay attention to Democrats and Republicans. Um, and in that case, we're not looking really at whether they're going to be persuaded uh, by a particular message. We, we know they always vote for uh, for their own candidates almost 90% of the time. But rather, we want to look at their turnout rates. Uh, who's more energized? Who's might likely to show up? Um, and you know, this is where I think the uh, the science of polling becomes very, very difficult. This is is uh, one of the things that that makes predict, predicting election outcomes hard. Because in addition to all the uncertainty I just mentioned to you earlier, uh, we also have to try and anticipate who's actually going to vote. Um, now, the way we do it with the Grinnell College National Polls, we just ask people, 
are, are you likely to vote? And if they tell us they definitely are, we treat them as a likely voters. Uh, other pollsters um, try and model that out. They, they create models of what the electorate is likely to look at. And, and if those models are wrong, that can really lead pollsters in, uh, in, uh, in the direction of, of failing to predict what uh, the electorate's going to look like. Mm-hmm. When we focus on turnout, I mean, people, if we imagine people, you know, either voting or staying at home, turnout to, uh, can be influenced to, uh, let's just take an individual. A person can be motivated to vote to because they're angry uh, for something negative or something positive. They really believe in a candidate or a certain idea, issue that a candidate represents. Uh, how do you evaluate, or does it even matter whether the person is against strongly motivated against something or strongly motivated for something? Well, you know, both of those factors can uh, lead a voter to turn out. You know, I, I, I think there's such a, uh, it really goes sort of issue by issue and candidate by candidate in terms of the intensity level associated with that issue. I mean, we do know, for example, that um, the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade uh, earlier this year really did motivate Democratic voters and gave them a lot uh, uh, more incentive to vote than they'd been uh, reporting earlier. Uh, but I don't think there's a single rule that uh, that we can articulate about that, that, that one type of issue over another is going to always motivate voters. Mm-hmm. Um Let's let's talk about uh, more uh, about how to make a poll because you uh, are dealing with the nuts and bolts of um, uh, you know is it twice a year the Grinnell College National Poll? Do I have that right? That's right. Okay. So when you start, and I'm sure you have things um, percolating on the back burner right now for your next uh, poll. Walk us through how you go about making a poll as a pollster. Where do you start, for instance? Well, from our standpoint, um, we know that there are certain questions about American politics we always want to ask. We're always going to ask about the president's approval rating. We are always going to ask whether voters are confident uh, that their vote will be counted accurately. Um, We always want to ask a question about the economy. And, And those questions provide benchmarks over time that we can compare from poll to poll And we know that um, members of the media are often interested in those big picture things, especially when we're approaching an election. Um, After that, there are research questions that we're interested in. So as I mentioned, we're we're very interested in the health of American democracy. We want to know how the American people think about liberty and equality. And so we'll spend a very long time uh, here at Grinnell talking with our, our faculty and our students about what particular aspect of those issues we're interested in. I'll talk about that with our pollster, Aunt Seltzer, and get her feedback. Um, and, and those will change from poll to poll. Last spring, we were very interested in understanding attitudes about public schools. Uh, we found that Americans were deeply concerned uh, about their state, that they, uh, that they lacked trust in educators to make uh, good decisions um, much of the time. Um, and, you know, more recently, we've been uh, looking at the way Americans think about liberty. We've asked them lots of different questions, how they think about the right to carry a gun, how they think about the right to abortion, how they think about being required to wear a seatbelt, and, and how all those attitudes fit together. Um, and so 
as we go through this project, we're trying to just accumulate data in all of those areas, and, and that feeds into student research projects and faculty research projects that help us to understand American society. Mm-hmm. Let's go to our first caller uh, for Peter Hansen. Peter is a polling expert. In fact, he's the director of the Grinnell College National Poll, political scientist. Uh, Ron is on the line. Um, Ron, welcome to the program. What question do you have for, for Peter? Can we get the help of professional pollsters? Um, in the 70s and 80s, I listened to many people from zero abortions to zero restrictions. We need to have a policy that 80% in the middle can tolerate, and the pollsters are the professionals who can help us find out what tiny changes, one way or the other, are necessary to the 2021 row uh, standard. What changes are necessary so that 80% in the middle can tolerate it, recognizing the extremists will be unhappy on both extremes? Mm. Interesting question, Ron. Thank you very much. Peter, what do you have to say to that? Well, you know, Ron's asked about um, an extraordinarily important area here, you know, abortion policy. And what's fascinating about polling on abortion is that it has actually been very stable for decades. Um, And it's stable in this regard. A majority of Americans uh, want women to have access to abortion um, early in pregnancy, say within the first 15 weeks. And when we just polled on this, we found um, a strong majority of the American public, and that included, I think, 49% of Republicans wanted abortion to be legal within the first 15 weeks of pregnancy. Now, when you get into other circumstances, those numbers do change a lot. You know, For example, uh, when we talk about abortions later in pregnancy, uh, the public shifts into opposition against that kind of abortion. Um, now, there, you know, of course, we, we, we don't necessarily want uh, public opinion to be dictating policy because there are very difficult health-related circumstances that arise that people aren't necessarily aware of. But I think if you're looking for consensus, it's certainly um, for legalized abortion in, early in pregnancy. Mm-hmm. Ron, thank you for that uh, question. Uh, one 866-780-9100. Let's talk a little bit about when polls get it wrong or when they are perceived as, as getting it, it wrong, which has happened in, in, in recent elections. We had, I think, what, 2020 pre-election polls really taking a, a drubbing from um, following that, uh, underestimating former President Trump's vote margin by uh, several percentage points. I guess I'm taking my uh, my notes here from the Washington, uh, Washington Post article on this. Uh, the highest error in at least 20 years, according to the American Association for Public Opinion Research. What happens? Uh, recall some some recent flubs, or um, well, when it was interpreted that polls did not get it correct. Well, in the last two election cycles, I think we've seen examples of polls getting it wrong. You know, uh, in um, in 2020, uh, for example, I don't think that Democrats expect, expected their uh, margin in the House to be as close as it was. They were expecting a healthy majority there and instead lost a lot of those races. I don't think Democrats expected Abby Finkenauer to lose here in Iowa, for example. Um, but here is my best analysis of, of what's going on. 
I mentioned earlier that when we contact a random sample of the American public, we know on average that older Americans will answer their phones more often than younger Americans. And we can correct for that because we can compare our sample against the census. But what we can't detect is whether Democrats or Republicans um, are answering their phones at different rates. And there is a fair amount of evidence that Republicans are less likely to respond to pollsters than Democrats. And we can't correct for it because we can't detect it, uh, because there is no national census data uh, on partisanship. And so if we're in a situation where Republicans are systematically less likely to answer the phone and pollsters can't correct for that, then the final results are going to underestimate public support for Republican candidates. And my guess is uh, when the polls have been off and Republicans have outperformed the polls, that is a key reason for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Doug, one of our listeners, wants to know what happened in 2016. Well, I think what I, I just described is a, a good part of the answer. Uh, polls showed, showed Hillary Clinton uh, well ahead. I think they, they understated Republican support, and, uh, and, and that's why um, many people were surprised by the result. Uh, sort of beyond that, I mean, there was sort of a larger story there about uh, Donald Trump just doing a, um, an unexpectedly good job winning the support of uh, folks who have been voting Democratic previously, per, uh, particularly uh, white non-college educated Democrats uh, are being uh, peeled off uh, from the party and, and starting to vote Republican. And, and that, I think, took some pollsters by surprise. Yeah. And, and we, we hear it, it did happen in certain states. Um, what, three states, some 70,000 votes, because we know Hillary Clinton won in 2016 by some 3 million votes. So it, would, it came down to, because of our Electoral College, uh, tens, a few tens of thousands of votes in certain states, correct? That's correct. And, and you know, and, uh, that happened in places like Wisconsin and uh, Michigan and, and Pennsylvania. Uh, and here, of course, if you want to talk about polling uh, in those places when you know, we've got national polls like the Grinnell College National Poll, but if you want to know what's going on in a particular state, you need state-level polls. Um, and those are of varying quality uh, in places where I think in 2016 where pollsters thought they knew what the outcome was going to be. They didn't conduct a lot of them. So I think places like Michigan and, and Wisconsin were underpolled. Um, and so we were in a situation in 2016 where there were relatively few state-level polls in some of those areas. Um, and pollsters were probably facing this problem of Republican non-response to polls that I mentioned earlier, and they just missed it. You know, there weren't enough polls. Uh, there were problems they weren't aware of. And as a result, they were surprised by what actually happened. Peter, which polls should we be most wary of? Well, you always want to look at the methodology. If they don't report it, then that should be a red flag. Um, but in terms of methodology, you know, our, our gold standard here really still is um, a live interviewer on the telephone talking to the respondent uh, as opposed to a computer uh, calling up a person and, and them just punching numbers in response or or an internet survey of unknown quality. Uh, we still want a person talking to a person, uh, but that's gotten very hard and very expensive and it's not done as much anymore. And, and we're still 
working on alternative ways of, of gathering public opinion data. I think some people have had polling from it's sort of mechanized, robotic, or software-driven, where you know you may start to answer questions, and then after the second or third question, because of supposedly because of the way you answered, um, it will just end the call. Can you tell us what's happening there? Well, it's hard to know uh, what's happening in that particular situation. I, I think. Um, uh, so I, I don't know if I can if I can speculate, Ben, because there are okay. sometimes there are let, yeah I'll, let, I'll stop there. Let, 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 let me just ask you know so what is your advice to, when we get a call from a purported pollster because you know some of them are credible, some of them not, some are push polling that are actually just trying to convince you to vote for one candidate over another. What's your advice there when getting a call? Well, I you know a piece of advice number one is I. I hope that uh, your listeners would take the time to talk to those pollsters. It's, it's very important for us to try and understand public attitudes. Um, but second, to keep their ears open and use their head. And if they really feel like the questions are, are not being asked in a fair way, if the caller is trying to push them a particular direction, then rather um, say what they think than to, you know, just be attentive to that. And, yeah. um, you know, be aware that sometimes these calls are a form of persuasion. Yeah, but but how to determine that from the you know within the first few minutes? How do you determine if you have a credible poll there, supposing people want to participate? Well, uh, you know it it may not be evident within the first few minutes. You just have to again listen and and be attentive. And um, I think much of the time, uh, reputable reputable pollsters uh, are just asking straightforward questions. You know, do you approve of President Biden? How do you think the economy is doing? Those kinds of questions are, um, uh, you know, are basic and very important. Um, but if it sounds like, again, a question is aimed at uh, providing you with negative information about a candidate or, or negative information about an issue, that should be a sign that it's really an effort to persuade you rather than just see what you think. Yeah. Peter, we have about a minute left. When we look in the future, the current, you mentioned several challenges in the last few minutes to uh, to pollsters. Um, will these challenges become greater in the future, uh, supposing we have partisanship uh, staying around and also our, our digital world? Well, you know, uh, we, we run a, a telephone poll um, with, uh, with Ann Seltzer, and you know, the number one concern is just response rates. And uh, we know that Americans are less likely to answer their phones than they have in the past. Uh, when I've ta- when Ann and I have talked about this previously, I mean, she tells me she needs to uh, purchase around 32,000 phone numbers just to get a 1,000 respondents. And uh, so that challenge just keeps going up. Um, and, and so if we get to the point where we don't have enough people answering the phone, it'd be very hard to analyze uh, American public opinion. Okay, a snapshot of polling in 2022 from Peter Hansen, director of the Grinnell College National Poll. Peter, thank you uh, for your words of advice and uh, your insights into modern polling. Thank you, Peter. Thanks for having me, Ben. Coming up after a short break, we'll focus on the humanitarian crisis in Haiti, um, a country overtaken by violent gangs. That's when we return. It's River to River from Iowa Public Radio News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Thank you.
Support for IPR comes from Des Moines Metro Opera, whose 2024 season features The Barber of Seville, Zalame, Peleus and Melisande, and American Apollo, June 28th through July 21st. Tickets available now at DesMoinesMetroOpera.org. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. And we're back with more of River to River from Iowa Public Radio News. I'm Ben Kiefer. The Republic of Haiti in the Caribbean is in very bad shape, has been for some time, and it's gone from very bad to even worse. Uh, just 600 miles off of Florida's coast, millions of Haitians face a humanitarian security and political crises. Uh, more than one million people there suffer from acute food insecurity. Cholera also spreading. Violence has reached previously safe areas, and the government appears powerless to provide solutions. It was just last Friday that a Haitian politician, Eric Jean-Baptiste, was shot dead outside of his home in the capital of Port-au-Prince. The assassination is the latest killing in a country overtaken by violent gangs. It comes a year after the nation's serving president uh, was murdered in Port-au-Prince, uh, which has been the site of brutal gang battles uh, this summer. Whole neighborhoods, perhaps you've seen them uh, on the Internet or on uh, your television, whole neighborhoods set aflame, thousands of families displaced, others trapped in their homes, really literally afraid to leave, uh, even in search of food and water sometimes. Now, the number of Haitians displaced by recent gang-related violence in the capital has tripled, has tripled in the past five months. That's according to the United Nations International Organization for Migration. Uh, This report said that more than 113,000 people internally displaced from Port-au-Prince between June and August of this year, nearly 90,000 of them due to uh, urban violence linked to intergang gang police and social conflicts. Joining this half hour, two guests, with connections to Haiti to help us understand the extent of the humanitarian crisis in Haiti. Uh, Dimi Doreska is an associate professor of practice at the Tippi College of Business at the University of Iowa in Iowa City. Dimi joins me in the studio. Welcome to our program. Thanks for having me, Ben. Kim Riley Adams is with us as well. She's uh, chair of the board of directors for Community Health Initiative Haiti. Kim, welcome to the program. Thank you. Glad to be here. If you'd like to join us with uh, questions uh, about the crisis in Haiti, one 780 9100 1-866-780-9100, or email us, river to river at iowapublicradio.org. Before we get into the situation in Haiti, let's learn a little bit more about your specific connections with Haiti. Demi, start, let me start with you. Tell us a little bit about your background. You were born in Haiti uh, and the connections you have with Haiti now. Thank you, Ben. I think you set the stage very well for us uh, uh, this afternoon. Uh, I was born and raised in Haiti, uh, in uh, Lekai, uh, southern cone of of, uh, of Haiti, and uh, I uh, still have uh, lots of connections in the country, and uh, still have uh, relatives there. Uh, my sister and 
and her son is they are both in Port-au-Prince and and I have my aunt in 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 Lekai and I have cousins and 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 uh, nephews nieces and my wife's relatives my wife's also from Haiti I have a bunch of uncles and 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 aunts and and cousins in Haiti so we are following uh, the situation in Haiti on a regular basis. When was the last time you were back in your home country? The last time I was in Haiti was in the summer of 2019. Mm, uh, so it's right, been a while. Uh, right mm. before COVID hit. I, um, before COVID, I used to go to Haiti at least twice a year to conduct uh, entrepreneurship training programs and also to visit relatives. And uh, when I was there in uh, in August 2019, that's that's what I was doing, and and I and I made plan to return in uh, the first half of 2020. Then COVID hit, and and then the situation became worse too in Haiti back then. So I never, I've never been there since then. Mm-hmm. Before we get to Kim, uh, Demi, I want to ask because you mentioned you have uh, friends, family, relatives in Haiti right now, and I outlined. Um, the news reports and the, the dramatic escalation of the crisis within the the last half year or so. What uh, what stories? Uh, what are you hearing from friends and family within the last few months about how much worse it has become? People are frustrated, and uh, they always say, "When you think you reach the bottom, but you things still getting worse day by day," and. Uh, it's and what's frustrate people the most is really the hunger situation, and as you mentioned in your introduction, about five million Haitians now are on the as we call are facing uh, food insecurity. So and, they're, and, they're and, struggling to find even one meal a day. If I remember right, Haiti is a is a country of ten or eleven million. Uh, about 15 million right about now. About 15 yeah, million. Yeah. So a third of the population facing hunger. Yes. And this is serious. And when you talk to people, it, it's really about food. It's really about their next meal or mm-hmm. even their, their only meal for the day. So that's really what frustrates most people in Haiti. Whenever you talk to them is people are hungry. Yeah, People are hungry. Kim Ronnie Adams, let me uh, have you tell us a little bit about uh, the Community Health Initiative, Haiti. Um, what is your angle on this crisis currently? Well, our angle um, is to be able to provide uh, health care for our uh, patients in Dodigue and Fondol. And due to the um, just dangerous um, gang-related activity um, in and around Port-au-Prince and Arca'i, where we see our patients, our organization just has not um, been able to travel to assist our patients, uh, throw in the pandemic, um, and that has even put us further behind in getting um, American boots on the ground to help out. We do have our, our Haitian staff um, there on the ground doing the best they can, but they are also um, suffering the consequences of the gang-related activity, um, you know, with um, food shortages and the inflation um, prices of gas to get to and, and from work to, um, 
even getting payroll money out of the bank. The banks are closed due to the mm-hmm. due to the uh, uh, gang uh, related activity. So um, it's a real struggle for us to um, you know do the work that we've set out to do. Um, our our crew in, in Haiti is doing the best they can, but when we can't get money to them to uh, get medications, um, when it's dangerous to travel, it just makes it really hard to carry out our mission. I wonder if you can relay any of the the firsthand encounters that your staff has had in Hades, just just a sort of concrete examples of what peace people are facing on a daily basis in in terms of health care and and uh, hunger and so forth that you're hearing through your staff there, Kim. Yeah, so for example, uh, one of our community health workers, which is like our nurses on the ground, she uh, made a home visit um, to a patient with a really bad um, burn and infection. And just because of the um, dangerous um, gangs in the area, they were unable to transport this gentleman uh, to a local hospital um, for treatment. And I'm guessing that the outcome for him probably was not great because of the um, inability to get him the proper care um, that he needed in the hospital setting. Also, I, I know our staff, you know, they're facing food insecurity as well. And um, and their patients that they're taking care of, you know, like Dini said, that they're hungry. They need, you know, they're looking for their next their next meal, and they're not sure when they're going to get that. And if you are already chronically ill and you can't eat or have, you know, uh, maintain a healthy diet, it just contributes, um, you know, to more health problems down the road. Um, and ultimately, um, unfortunately, some of these people will probably end up dying. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're talking about the humanitarian crisis uh, this half hour in Haiti uh, with two uh, uh, Iowans um, who have connections, obviously, with Haiti. Um, uh, Demi Doreska uh, is uh, at the Tippy College of Business at the University of Iowa. He's a native Haitian. And uh, Kim Riley Adams is the chair of the board of directors for something called Community Health Initiative Haiti, one 780 so I hear both of you talking about what's changed here is this upswing in the brutal gang violence. Neither of you are political scientists, uh, but Demi, I wonder if you can give us some background as to uh, what the gangs, uh, what is their, their, what are their goals, why has the gang-related violence increased uh, in, in your understanding? You know, even before the death of, uh, before the, the, the assassination of uh, President Jovenel Moise uh, a year and a half ago, the gangs were really controlling the political spheres in Haiti. And the, the, the rise of the gang happened mostly because the politicians on both sides, uh, the oppositions and on, in the government, they needed the gang to advance their agenda. They, the gangs have been supported by the political leaders, either the oppositions or or, or the, the, the party in power. Then they were even you know, arming the gangs. They were providing them shelter and everything. So things got to a level where the gangs now, they become so powerful, they stopped listening to the political leaders. And they started creating their own 
parallel governments in, in the different areas that they are of the country. Some gangs control the west side of Port-au-Prince, some the, the south, some the north side, and they started having their own ways of terrorizing the people, et cetera, et cetera. And the government really cannot do anything. And then on top of that, you see the infighting between the political leaders uh, for power, for money. And uh, also you see the way that lack of responsible leadership in the country, you know, uh, and that has been going on for a long time, since 1986 when the Duvalier left, uh, uh, the Duvalier regime fell back in 86. The country has been suffering from responsible leadership. So everything has been piling up, and that caused this situation to get out of hand. And, and what people are talking right now in the country, when I talk to my friends and uh, some, uh, some uh, um, uh, experts in, uh, on, on Haiti, is a solution where they talk about the tabula rasa, which is really let's get rid of the entire political class and bring a new political class that will bring some responsible leadership to the country. That's they're saying that's the only solution, and the, and, and and the solution has to come from Haitians, you know, and and uh, that, that that sounds like you know to to clear have a clear slate. It, uh, it sounds, in theory, like a good idea, but I guess how do you get from where we are now in Haiti to that to that point of sort of rebuilding a democracy, right? Yeah, yes, exactly. And 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 Haiti has had this uh, refresh many times, and uh, since 1986, uh, after the departure of the of uh, Baby Doc Duvalier, uh, we've we've had this you know refresh, this reboot. And we had it again and, you know, after Aristide, and we had it again, you know, uh, uh, after Michel Matéli. But, but it's still the same political class. So in your estimation, what's at, what's at the heart, what's at the root of the dysfunction in Haiti over generations? It's, you know, I hate to bring that. Uh, it's, it's really the way the colonization happened in Haiti. Mm. It's really the way that the French colonizers, they were dividing the Haitian people so they can install their, their reign in the country. It's, uh, you know, I don't know if you read the series of articles in the New York Times uh, about uh, two or three months ago when they talked about, you know, how, you know, the French created this situation in Haiti that, the country never recovered from it's 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 you know and 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 that's why the the term of responsible leadership i use that a lot in the case of Haiti because all the leaders that i've seen since the departure of baby doc they don't have that responsible that that responsible leadership skills and and and, and, and if anybody wanting to aspire to a leadership position has to worry about being assassinated that is true when you when when you when you try and to you know to bring some responsible leadership in in into into public affair, definitely that's what happens. So, so again, you know, me being not a political science expert, you know, that's really my analysis to this, Ben, and and uh, so that's how I see it. 
Okay, Kim, I wanted to get back to you about the Community Health Initiative, Haiti. Uh, mm-hmm. What else do you want us to know? We have, there's a cholera outbreak. How recent is that? In the bigger picture of uh, hunger, um, how does uh, cholera fit in there, for example? Well, um, you know, with the cholera outbreak in the last couple months, um, people just don't, you know, markets are closed. Um, and if they can get to the market, the price of food is just astronomical. So um, besides cholera, we're seeing, you know, chronic malnutrition um, across the board. Um, we're seeing underdevelopment of children just because they're not getting, um, you know, a, a proper diet. And All of this, you know, innocent people are being affected by, you know, the a few, so to speak. And um, like I said, cholera is just kind of adding insult to injury um, as to what's already happening in the country. And so um, we're also seeing an uptick um, in the AIDS crisis that hasn't um, been at this level since the late 1980s, 1990s. Um, And I just... You know, I don't know that I actually have the answer. Um, You know, CHI does their small part um, with the communities that we serve. Mm -hmm. But there's just such a great need that um, it's going to take more than CHI, obviously, to get in there and address these problems. More broadly, to the extent you know this, Kim, how are international aid organizations busy in in Haiti um, now? Um, What what is it? Give us a sense of that. You know, I I can't really speak to what's going on, you know, um, internationally. I know, um, you know, Canada and the United States have been talking, but I don't think it's addressing, you know, the the health care of the of the people of Haiti. I think it's more of a a military type sense right now with international aid going into the country, yeah. um, from what I have read and heard. But I don't. I think, you know, if we don't address the health care situation, um, eventually it's going to be so bad that. Um, you know, who knows what could happen, but it would, the mortality rate in Haiti would um, skyrocket, I think. Yeah. Demi, tell us a little bit about your read on international efforts in Haiti. Yeah, to, to add uh, to what Kim's just mentioned, I, I, what I think needs to happen is first on the hunger situation, the international community needs to find ways to, to come to the needs of the Haitian people. Then second, uh, I've never seen such uh, international displaced, interna- internally displaced situation in Haiti for for long. I mean, I I was in Haiti through many crises, but I've never seen so many people leaving the cities, going into the countrysides to reside with uh, relatives or to find a way to find food, to find sh- safe shelter, et cetera, et cetera. I think. You know, the international community needs to look at ways to serve the interna- internally displaced people and as well as the, 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 the families, the relatives that are helping them in the countrysides. And because uh, they never see Haiti as a place where international, internally displaced situation can happen. Can help be delivered in its many facets with so much political violence? Go. 
yeah, gang I mean, violence? They, they always help can be delivered. Uh, you know, I mean, the gang violence really reside uh, in, in the major cities, mm. specifically in Port-au-Prince and its vicinity. But uh, when you go to the countrysides where the people are going to find safe shelters, uh, uh, helicopters can, can go into those places to deliver uh, uh, help to those people because that's, it's a major crisis, the inter- internally displaced uh, people, the IDPs. Major crisis. Kim, in the last couple of minutes here, give us a sense of the, your outlook for helping Haiti through your organization. What are you seeing in the coming weeks and months as you contemplate this? Yeah, so hopefully, um, right now we're really struggling with, you know, just um, keeping our uh, boots on the ground, so to speak, um, able to get out and do home visits to our patients. And hopefully, um, at some point yet this fall, we can get people to gather so that we can have um, a clinic with our Haitian staff and and see our chronically ill um, patients for sure so that they can get their medications refilled, um, you know, see, see a doctor for any um, new concerns they might have. Um, but as far as um, the actual people from the United States going down to Haiti, I just don't see that happening anytime in the near future um, until, like I said, the gang violence um, is under control. So we will continue to support our Haitian staff from afar as mm-hmm. best we can, and hopefully they can make uh, you know an impact on the lives of the patients that they are able to get out and see you know on a daily, weekly, and monthly we basis. Hear, we sure hope so, hope so. And, and that the staff themselves, they have enough to eat so they can help others. That's uh, so critical, such a dire situation. Uh, Kim, can you tell us uh, what individuals listening can do uh, to help the situation? Well, they can always um, donate to our organization, chihaiti.org, um, or they can reach out to, you know, international relief agencies um, that, you know, will help hopefully um, get boots on the ground to address, you know, the the health, hunger, and displacement of homes um, in Haiti so that, um, you know, we don't have a major health crisis on our hands here in the next month or so with people basically starving to death. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yes, you can reach out to us at chihaiti.org or any international relief organization. Demi, we have just a few seconds left. Your final words, thoughts of, to leave us with about your homeland. Well, I, I concur with Kim, so chihaiti.org, and, um, and I'm happy to continue the conversation with anyone offline. Okay, thank you very much. Demi uh, Doreska of the University of Iowa College of Business. Kim Riley Adams, thank you both for this conversation. You're welcome. You're welcome. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. Tomorrow on our program, we'll focus on climate change. It's increasingly no longer a question of whether you accept the science that the world is getting warmer, rather what to do about our rapidly changing climate. Tomorrow on the program, climate scientist Gene Talkley. I hope you'll tune in. I'm Ben Kiefer. Until then.